Timothy Keller once said, Christ will do everything for you or nothing. He's either all of your righteousness or none. You know, if you were to read the Bible from cover to cover, you would find the subject of moderation to be a common theme throughout, from how we eat and drink to how we work and rest, from how we express our emotions to seeking pleasure for ourselves, right, from how we spend our time and money, even when it comes to how we express the spiritual gifts that are given to us from God while we're gathered together uh, as the church. The scriptures teach moderation over and over and over again. It's a common theme and a healthy prescription for life. Save one profound exception. When it comes to loving God and loving each other, there is absolutely no room for moderation. In fact, in terms of our relationship with him and with each other, moderation is actually the enemy because it breeds indifference and nothing will kill a relationship faster than indifference. And yet the modern church is rife with indifference both toward God and toward one another. People can walk in and out of church today not knowing and not concerned in the least with how others are even doing. Some folks are more concerned with how the church looks or how the people in the church look than they are about being in the presence of a holy God and his holy bride, their own brothers and sisters in Christ. There are Christians who are more passionate about the song selection than they are about actually worshiping God. We have churches today full of believers who are far more concerned with getting to do what they want in the church than they are with serving where they're needed. We, we've served God and others in moderation for so long that we've become increasingly indifferent about actually being with Him and being with each other. To the point that we're, we're willing to give God and one another a part of our lives, but not all of it. And I'm telling you, it's killing our relationships within the body of Christ, within the church, while we think we're being wise, prudent, balanced. Because most of us have been taught one way or another to treat relationships with cautious moderation, to protect our own interests first instead of putting each other first. But Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, John 15, 13. He also said, just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another, John 13, 34. Well, how did Jesus love us? Not with moderation. No, Jesus gave everything for us. John, the apostle closest to Jesus, said, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, 1 John three sixteen. He said, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed, and in truth, 1 John 3, 18, the apostle Paul said, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. Romans 13, 8, he said, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 12, 10, the apostle Peter said, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. 1 Peter 4, 8, you see, the men and women who followed Jesus during his time on the earth learned from him to love each other without reservation or moderation. There was no indifference for them when it came to loving God and loving others. For them, it was an all-or-nothing proposition. And indeed, 
in the end, they gave all they had for Christ and for each other. And yet most of us in this modern age, we've been taught in one form or another that what we do for others should be done in moderation while that which we do for ourselves can be done in excess. Right? I mean, growing up, most of us were taught to cultivate self-esteem. But Scripture teaches us to cultivate esteem for Christ. Most of us have been taught to love ourselves. Scripture teaches us to love God and others above ourselves. Most of us have been taught to feed our own will, to strive for ourselves, but Scripture teaches us to crucify our will in deference to His and to give our lives away for Him and for others. It is the norm in our culture to moderate our giving while maximizing our getting. The very opposite of what Jesus taught. And of course, that's not, uh, that's not unique to this period in history. Self-love has been a part of the human condition since the dawn of humankind. And so Jesus Christ came and showed us a better way. But listen, that better way came with a warning label. Because Jesus wanted people to understand exactly what it was they were going to get into if they decided to follow him. So Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What a strange thing to say. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Bearing your own cross meant you were on your way to die a horrible death. What a strange thing to say. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Do you understand what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, look, you'd better think long and hard about what you're getting into before you decide to follow me because the cost couldn't be any higher. It's going to cost you everything you have and all that you are to follow me. So therefore, anyone who does not renounce all that he has, you cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 26 through 33. By the way, the word hating that he begins with there, to hate in the ancient Hebrew was a Semitic expression. It literally meant to love less. Jesus was saying, if you're going to follow me, then I need you to understand something. This is an all or nothing deal. You cannot have anything or anyone else in your life that you love more than you love me. I have to be first in your life or you cannot be my disciple. Those are his words, not mine. Francis Chan said he wants all or nothing. The thought of a person calling himself a Christian without being a devoted follower of Christ is absurd. It means no more indifference. It means no more moderation. It means all or nothing. Jesus says, that's how you're going to have to love me. And that's how you're going to have to love each other. Otherwise, don't bother calling yourself my disciple. It's about as clear as you can be. When it comes to being a disciple of Christ and a part of his church, listen, you're either all in or you're not really in at all. There was no middle ground for Jesus. There was no middle ground for his apostles, and there's no middle ground for us. 
It's a lesson that God's people have had to learn throughout the ages, which we're going to see in our story today as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the book of Joshua, where God's people had been indifferent toward him and toward each other for a very long time. There was a lot of grumbling and complaining among his people. A lot of them were looking out for themselves first, which resulted in a whole lot of them wandering around in the wilderness, falling short of their calling, missing out on all that God had planned for them for 40 years until something decisive happened. For the first time since leaving Egypt, they were finally all in for God and for each other. And the effect was immediate and dramatic as their leader Joshua, under the direct command of God, leads them miraculously across the Jordan River into the promised land of Canaan. And last week we looked at the first half of this story of that triumphant crossing of the river. So today we're going to finish that part of the story here where God's people learn that truly living for him and for each other is without a doubt it's an all or nothing decision. So let's pick the story right up where we left off last week at Joshua chapter 4, and we'll start by reading the first seven verses. Joshua 4, 1 through 7. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people from each tribe, a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you shall lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord of your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. So last week we learned that there were two and a half million Jews, along with their children, men, women, children, their livestock, their personal belongings, their carts, their tools, their tents, crossing the River Jordan. Obviously, this was a massive undertaking as the uh, landscape would drop down about 200 feet into what they called the Azor. We talked about it last week, this thicket surrounding the river bottom. And then after navigating through that mile-wide thicket, a half a mile on each side of the river, through thorns and thistles full of, full of wild and very dangerous animals, they had to cross the river while God held back the waters. And then all two and a half million of them, with everything they owned, then had to go through the thicket, the Azor, on the other side and then back up the valley floor 200 feet above them. The entire affair was such an epic event, one of the great supernatural miracles of all time with profound significance on many different levels, which we'll talk about as we go. But it was such a defining moment for God's people that the Lord told Joshua to make a memorial there commemorating the day when God made good on his promise to his people. And the memorial was to be constructed of 12 large stones representing, of course, the 12 tribes of Israel, which was significant because two and a half of those 12 tribes were not settling west of the Jordan River in Canaan, where they'd just crossed into. If you were here for chapter 1, you'll remember that the Transjordanian tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh were to settle east of the Jordan, where they just came from. So why set up a memorial for all 12 tribes on the other side of the river? It's because from those Transjordanian tribes, 40,000 armed elite fighting men had gone with the rest of Israel across the river to take part in the military conquest, to take possession of the land, and only after that would they return 
to their own tribes, their own families, their own homes. In other words, all the tribes of Israel, all 12, were taking part in the crossing of the Jordan, and they were all taking possession of the promised land, even though some would later live back on the eastern side of the river, which is why God makes clear in his instruction to Joshua that the memorial was to include 12 stones, not nine and a half stones. Because as far as God was concerned for his people, this was an all-or-nothing campaign. The memorial was for all of God's people, regardless of which side of the river they settled on. That's also why what actually prompted God to instruct Joshua to build the memorial was not the moment when God held back the waters. No, it was the moment the last person crossed the river. Verse 1 says, when all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, and then he gives Joshua instructions about the memorial, because God could have held back the waters as he did, but if the people refused to cross over, there would have been nothing to memorialize concerning the 12 tribes of Israel at least. So God waited, not until some of them finally decided to cross, not until most of them made it across. No, God waited till the last person had crossed that river because when God calls his people to move it's an all or nothing command okay we go together or we don't go at all the great commission in Matthew 28 was given by Jesus to who the church the teachings and instructions of the apostles in the new testament were written to the church the institutions of water baptism and holy communion that we'll celebrate together were given for the church. God's promises through Christ were made to the church. His love for this world was meant to be expressed through the church. Jesus died in the worst possible way for the church, and he is coming back again one day to collect his church. The, okay, look, this idea that all I need in this life is me and Jesus, that is not in the Bible. That is not even a biblical concept. Of course, we absolutely need Jesus, but you understand we also very much need each other. You cannot have a high view of Christ and a low view of the church. Forget it. You cannot reconcile those two positions simultaneously in the scripture. You cannot have a high view of Christ and a low view of church. This, all I need in this life is me and Jesus. That's not from Jesus. It's not from God's word. Right? Yes, we need Jesus. We absolutely need each other, which is the way God meant for it to be from the beginning, for us to be on this journey of life together. And he put each of us here in this one chapter of history, this one moment in time with all of our individual talents and abilities to do what he's called us to do together. Look, you cannot and you will not become all that God has created you to become or accomplish all that he has called you to accomplish without the church. Sorry, you will not, you cannot. 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul, referring to us Christians, he said, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members, that's you and me, may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, 
all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You see, being a follower of Jesus Christ, it's an all or nothing deal, which means we're in this together whether we like it or not. Being a part of this family means you're going to have to be vulnerable at times, willing to lean on others, and those others had better be ready and willing to hold you up when you need it. Just as the crossing of the river by the Israelites was not recognized or memorialized until every single one of them had crossed, we are not accomplishing what God wants us to accomplish if we're not doing it together. You hear me? We are not accomplishing what God wants us to accomplish if we're not doing it together. Yet an awful lot of Christians act as if participating in the life of the church is optional. Listen to me. It's not optional. By the way, I'm not just talking about, you know, showing up here for services on Sunday. I'm talking about the life of the church, which is to say what is happening in our lives, not just on Sunday, but every other day as well. It's become very popular for people to say, well, you know, pastor, the church isn't the building, it's the people. That's right, but you have to finish that sentence because that's incomplete. The church isn't the building. The church is the people when we are together. You can't have a hand, a dismembered body, right? A hand over here, a foot over here, an ear over here, an eye over there, and expect it to function as a healthy body. We're not a dismembered body. We're a healthy, unified, united body. Right? When was the last time you gave up something you wanted to do so you could do something for someone else instead? When was the last time you hurt with someone who was hurting? When's the last time you celebrated with someone who was celebrating? Because this life isn't just about me and Jesus. It's about me and Jesus and the rest of my family. Every other believer on this planet, and especially those God has placed in my everyday life, okay? You need us. We need you. Because we're his church, which means we go together. Or we don't go at all. Let's keep reading the, uh, verse 8 through the first half of verse 10. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant stood. And they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. So the men representing each of the 12 tribes gathered the stones as instructed and took them to Gilgal where the Israelites would set up their encampment. But we also find Joshua in verse 9 setting up a second memorial of 12 stones in the river itself in the exact spot where the priests who were holding the Ark of the Covenant were standing which would have been visible during seasons of drought when the water levels dropped. This was a sign for future generations that God dried up that specific part of the river for the Jews to be able to cross over into the promised land. And that's important. I'll tell you why in a minute. So just for the sake of full disclosure, there are scholars, Bible scholars, who believe there was actually only one memorial at Gilgal. So this reference to Joshua 
setting up stones in the river in verse 9, according to them, was just some kind of like a parenthetical thought in the writing about the memorial stones coming from the river, which actually doesn't make any sense at all, because when you read it, that's not what it says. <laughs> we just Usually the simplest explanation is the best one. And yet there are other scholars who believe that Joshua did set up 12 stones in the river, but they were the same stones that 12 men then picked up from Gilgal and took back, right? The problem with that theory is not only does the passage not say that the men took the same stones that Joshua stacked up in the river uh, to Gilgal, but both the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the Vulgate, the ancient Latin translation of the Bible, both of those clearly state that the stones Joshua erected in the river were not the same stones used at Gilgal. So, you just based on a simple face value reading of the text and even some of our ancient manuscripts and not to mention plenty of scholars who agree, Joshua not only set up the memorial at Gilgal to testify to the crossing of the Jordan and the establishing of his people in Canaan, which we'll talk about in a minute, but he also set up a second memorial in the river as a testimony to what God did for all 12 tribes of Israel when he held back the waters during their crossing in that very location. Let's I keep reading then from halfway through verse 10 down to verse 14. The people passed over in haste, and when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over, armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000, ready for war, passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. So in a, this is a flashback to the actual crossing. Joshua says that the people passed over in haste, preceded by 40,000 well-armed men prepared for battle. It's important to note here that not only were the Hebrew people crossing over into the land that God had promised to their ancestors, they were also crossing over into enemy territory. And among all the enemy cities of Canaan, the city of Jericho was the most heavily fortified and well-defended of them all. And it lay six miles west of the Jordan River and 10 miles north-northwest of the Dead Sea, deep in the Jordan River Valley, just opposite the location where the Jews just crossed over. Which begs the question, why would you cross there? I mean, why not cross somewhere further away from the city of Jericho, right? It seems like a a poor strategy from a military perspective to cross the river where it was closest to this enemy stronghold. But actually the opposite was true because where the Israelites crossed the Jordan was absolutely the most unexpected place for an invading army to cross, the most dangerous place for an army to cross. Remember, they're 18 miles south of the city of Adam. We saw that last week. And south of Adam, the river was particularly deep and wide and fast. So if an army had any hope of fording the river in one piece, they would have to make their attempt much farther north, which would also place them much farther away from Jericho. And the thing is, the Canaanites knew that, right? So that meant if the Canaanite troops were going to try and ambush an invading army, they would wait near the northern fords, not by the river opposite the city. So make no mistake, this was a well-devised military campaign. The Israelites crossed over the river quickly and decisively in the most unexpected part of the river, ready for war. And yet their most elite fighting men belonged to the Transjordanian tribes, the Jews who were settling on the other side of the river that they just came from. These were people making no attempt to claim any of the land in Canaan west of the Jordan. So it's great they're there helping the other tribes cross the river, but what about Jericho? 
And what about all the lands in Canaan, as we'll see in the coming weeks, that have to be conquered after Jericho before God's people can even begin to settle in the land? The answer is these 40,000 men were not going to leave their fellow Israelites until the last battle was fought and the promised land secured, even though their wives and their children and belongings were back there behind them on the other side of the river. You understand, their commitment was to the whole family of Israel, not just their individual families. The, okay, the, the prevailing attitude among the Jews was, we fight together or we don't fight at all. These 40,000 fighting men were not just a military escort across the river to get the people into Canaan. They were as invested in the battles to come as any one of the Jews who would actually be living there. I mean, it would have been easy, right, for these, these Transjordanian men to say, hey, guys, this really isn't our fight. I mean, this isn't our, our battle, okay? Um, our land has already been secured, but you know what? I'm going to pray for you, bro. I'm, I'm going to send good thoughts and positive vibes. We'll, we'll pray for you because we need to go back home. We're taken care of over there. Good luck. That's not what they did. No, they fought for the land for their brothers and sisters just as they would have had it been their own because for them, being a part of God's family was all or nothing. Yet how many Christians today, when a brother or sister in Christ is fighting a battle of their own, how many of us are willing to offer prayers, well wishes, good thoughts and positive vibes, but little else? When I went to grad school, seminary, I, I went to England and did my degree there, my seminary degree there. And I met a young lady, a missionary, and her husband, Usha. Usha and Matt, amazing people. And at, at one point, toward the end of our schooling, uh, at the end of that, the three-year period of time, Usha uh, posted on Facebook that her apartment had been broken into and her laptop was stolen, like a $2,500 laptop. And uh, she was devastated because I think the, all of her grad school work was on that computer. Now, she had it backed up somewhere, but she couldn't access it without a computer. And we were facing deadlines, these final uh, papers and research projects, dissertations we had to turn in. She was distraught beside herself, and she posted all this on Facebook. Guys, you know, I just want you to know what's going on. And so all of these Christian friends of hers, including your pastor, posted things like, hey, Usha, I'm so sorry to hear this. We love you. We're praying for you. Over and over and over and over and over again. And there were just over 50 people that commented. And at the very end, some guy who she apparently was friends with on Facebook said, hey, everybody, I just wanted to draw your attention to something. I'm not a Christian. I'm not a, a believer or follower in Christ, but I am Usha's friend. And I was just reading through the comments here, and it looks like there are over 50 people who said they would be praying for Usha. Just wanted to mention that if all 50 of you would send her a $50 check, she could go out today and buy a brand new laptop. You want to talk about conviction? I went home that day and sent Usha a check for $50. Listen, prayer is unequivocally the most powerful thing we can ever take on behalf of ourselves or other people. There's nothing even as close to being as powerful as prayer. But that doesn't mean we're excused from doing anything else. In Acts 2, when you read the description of the early church, you find us Christians selling their personal belongings to be able to pay for the needs of others among them. Right? How many Christians do that today? 
How many of us, when our brothers and sisters are in need, how many of us are willing to sell something of our own to meet that need, let alone a $50 check? See, our attitude, when another believer is struggling, our attitude should be, yes, I'm praying for you, of course I am, but I'm also fighting with you. I will not let you go through this alone. I'm with you every step of the way. Whatever personal sacrifice is required, that's okay, because I'm fighting with you. Do you know the conquest of Canaan lasted seven years? That means 40,000 men from the tribes east of the Jordan left their families, their wives, their little ones, and their homes behind to fight with the rest of Israel for seven years while their little kids grew up. Seven years. They offered their own lives for their fellow Israelites because for them it was all or nothing. It was about as, as much, much more than just their individual families. It was about the family of God. So as far as they're concerned, it was all or nothing. There was no middle ground. There was no moderation. There was no indifference. There was no idle talk or empty promises. When it came time to fight, they took up arms and went before the rest of the nation to make war on their common enemies as long as it would take until every last Hebrew among them was at peace in the land promised to them settled in their own homes. You understand that's the way it's supposed to be. Nothing has changed in that regard for God's people. No one fights alone. No one faces the enemy alone. No one in God's family should ever have to wonder whether or not someone will be with them when the battles in this life come. And we all know they will. Whether it's seven years or seven days, we fight together or we don't fight at all. Because for God's people... It's all or nothing. Let's keep reading. Verse 15 to 18. And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priest bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, Come up out of the Jordan. And when the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. As, as we saw last week, it was the presence of God represented by the ark of the covenant or the ark of the testimony that held back the waters of the Jordan so that the people could cross over on dry ground. And we talked about the fact that some scholars believe the damming of the waters was a natural occurrence caused by an earthquake and a subsequent mudslide, uh, which is mentioned, I don't know, nowhere in Scripture. So I'm not going to go back through all of that again other than to say the fact that the water stopped flowing the moment the ark was carried into the water and then returned to their normal flow the moment the priest carried the ark out of the water. So if that was an earthquake and a mudslide, that was like the biggest coincidence in all of human history. Or this was a supernatural work of God on behalf of his people. And for what it's worth, I'm betting on the latter. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 19 to the end of the chapter. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So on the tenth day of the first month, the people of God came out of the Jordan and encamped at Gilgal where they would make preparations there to begin possessing the promised land. The same day 
The same day, 40 years earlier, the Israelites made preparations for the first Passover in Exodus 12.3, which precipitated their coming up out of Egypt. And just like the timing of the ark entering and exiting the Jordan corresponding with the flow of the waters, this was no coincidence either. God's plan for his people was unfolding to the day just as he had foreordained it. And yet before they did anything else concerning Canaan, they first set up the memorial of 12 stones at Gilgal, the place that would become their main base of operations throughout their early conquest of Canaan. They took time to set up these stones as a testimony not only to the people of God, but to all the earth that there is but one true God who has been working through his people across the ages and continues to work through them in ways today that only he can. And again, the fact that there were 12 stones in the memorial distinctly includes the tribe's from east of the Jordan as a part of this great testimony, which is how God uh, uh, intended it to be concerning the testimony of his people throughout the ages, okay? We testify together, or we have no testimony at all. We testify together, or we have no testimony. In other words, as God's people, what we testify to is meaningless, if we're not all saying the same thing about who God is and what he's done, if we all just make up whatever version of God we want, it's meaningless. And if everyone is saying something different about who God actually is right now, and if we're all saying something different about what he's done for people in the past, if we just want to rewrite history, then the church loses its identity and our testimony becomes useless, feckless, completely ineffective. Professor of theology and author James Gustafson wrote, the church is shaped by a common memory. Another professor of theology and author Alan Verhey put it this way, without remembering, there is no identity. In amnesia, one loses one's identity. And without common remembering, there is no community. This is precisely why God had Joshua make these stone memorials so that people would never forget what actually happened, what God actually did for his people, and the fact that what he did was done for all of Israel, all 12 tribes, otherwise over time. Look, it would have been easy for some of the tribes west of the Jordan to say, you know, the tribes east of the Jordan, they didn't really take part in our conquest of Canaan all those years ago, except that there were 12 stones sitting right there at Gilgal. So not much to argue about. Generations later, others may have said, you know, they didn't really cross through that deep part of the river. I bet they crossed over farther north where the fords are, where it's shallow. No, there were 12 stones in the river itself in the exact spot where they crossed. You see, when God's people share a common memory about what God has done, when we all testify together about what he's done for us, it is powerful and it sends a powerful and united message to the world. That's why it's so important that we don't just treat church on Sundays like a pep rally to pump us up for the week we're about to face at work or school or at home. No, it's far more than that. We come here to learn together. This is time that we very purposefully dig deeper into God's Word to understand who he is and what he's done for us so that our testimony is a shared understanding and a common memory. And yet that testimony we share is also more than just remembering what he has done in the past. It's also a testament to what he's doing today through his people as we live out this gospel together. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples. By this, this world will know that you are who you say you are, and I am who I say I am, that you're really my followers. By what? If you have love for one another, 
John 13, 35. In other words, our testimony to the world about Jesus Christ is solely dependent upon each other. It is dependent upon how well we love each other. Do you understand? Our testimony is at the mercy of our love for one another. Our testimony to the gospel to this world is at the mercy of our love for one another. That means you can be Mr. Super Christian. Great. You can be Miss Wonder Woman Christian. That's awesome. You can do all the things that we think Christians are supposed to do. But if we do not love one another well, no one will pay attention to the rest of it. It's all for naught. If we don't love each other, for that is our greatest testimony, our love for our fellow Christians, according to Jesus. Again, you can do great things for this world. We can do tremendous acts of social justice, as we should. But at the end of the day, if you cannot love your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you cannot represent Christ. Sorry. If you cannot love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you cannot represent Christ because it's all or nothing. The Apostle John said, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. 1 John 4.20, that word brother in the ancient Greek is the word Delphos. John's referring to a brother in Christ, a fellow Christian, okay? Just like those 12 stones that Joshua left at Gilgal and in the river as a testimony to what God had done, Jesus Christ left with us, his love as a testimony to who he is and what he's done. But if that love isn't on display for the world to see, I mean, what good is it, right? If Joshua had hidden the rocks in a cave or buried them underground, they would have never testified to the world about the God of Israel. It's not enough for us to have positive feelings or good intentions toward one another. Our love has to be lived out every day before a watching world if it's going to testify to the truth of Jesus Christ. That will mean doing things for one another at times that you don't feel like doing. That will mean preferring others over yourself. That will mean being willing to be seen for who you actually are, not who you want people to think you are. And then extending that same grace for others to be able to do the same without condemnation. That will mean thinking the best of people instead of the worst. That will mean being honest about your own faults and owning up to your own mistakes and forgiving others even when they don't. That will mean making the effort on a consistent basis to know how your brothers and sisters in Christ are doing and helping them when they're not doing so well. Right? Spending your own time and your own money and your own life in the service of others until you realize that your time and your money and your life are not your own anyway. That's when the church becomes so much a part of you that it feels like a body that you're connected to. That's when you realize how much you need the church and how much the church needs you. We've gotten this idea largely through modern preaching that our first responsibility as Christians is to the world. That's not what the Bible says. Our first responsibility is to Jesus Christ and second to each other, our fellow members of the church of Jesus Christ, because that is the body that we belong to and that is what our testimony to this world hinges upon. We can't do anything good for this world if we can't do good for each other first. The Apostle Paul wrote to Christians in Galatia, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The church, Galatians 6.10, not because we're greedy, but because our love for one another is our testimony to the world, which means if we have no love for each other, then we have no testimony. It's all or nothing. We testify together. 
or we have no testimony at all. If Joshua had set up nine and a half stones, that would have been a sure sign that Israel was fragmented, the perfect way to bolster the resolve of your enemy, by the way. But he set up 12 stones so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And it worked, by the way, which we'll see in the next chapter. Okay, look, this life is not a practice run. We don't get to do it over. The truth is we get one shot at this life before we enter eternity. We get one opportunity to make the most of it. And each passing day is a day we can never get back. So when it comes to following God and loving others, do you really want your life to be known for moderation and indifference? Or do you want it to be known for making a difference? Because for you, it was all or nothing. That's a choice that each one of us has to make, to engage yourself in the life of the church, to fight for it, loving people, even if it costs you everything. Because this is an all or nothing deal. Jesus was clear. He said, you cannot have anything else in your life that you love more than you love me. I have to be first in your life. Or you cannot be my disciple. Which means no more indifference. No more moderation. No more middle ground. From here on out, it's all or nothing. Let's pray.